This is episode 85 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, A Quick History of Labor Unions. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. When I think about workers in the United States, I often think, what happened to the unions? And perhaps that's crossed your mind as well. I thought today we'd do a quick history of organized labor. I'd like to bring some people on the show to talk about organizing in this day and age, but I thought we should start first by getting some background about what organized labor has looked like in the United States. So what is it? Uh, Organized labor unions are organizations that represent workers in many industries, and they were uh, put together to be able to have collective bargaining with about wages and benefits and working conditions with employers, and also to uh, settle disputes with employers. Large trade unions typically also engage in lobbying and electioneering. Currently today, there are really only two large umbrella organizations, the AFL-CIO and the Change to Win Federation, which actually used to be part of the AFL-CIO. All right, some facts and figures for you here. In 2019, there were 14.6 million members in the U.S., down from 17.7 million in 1983. The percentage of workers that belong to a union today is about 10.3% compared to about 20% in 1983. Now, there's a very interesting thing that's happened in union membership on the private sector compared to the public side. The union membership in the private sector is now down to only 6%, But the membership on the public side is up well over 30%. And then also very interesting, most union members, over half of all union members in the U.S. live in just seven states. As you can imagine, New York and California figure big in that, but also Illinois, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Ohio, and Washington. Today, the strongest unions are those for public sector employees, such as city workers, government workers, teachers, and police. And I actually experienced this in my own life. I worked for a town government for a while, and although since I was part of the management group, or the executive group, I guess you would say, I wasn't allowed to join a union, but we did have four unions, in fact, that represented various sectors of the uh, town employees, the most noticeable of which was uh, the regular employees group, not management, not public works, and not police. They were part of a union called AFSCME, 
which includes all kinds of different workers, such as nurses, cafeteria workers, childcare providers, sanitation workers, and all kinds of different people. So union members typically are older and male and live on in the Northeast or in California. And it's been calculated by some people that union workers average 10 to 30% higher pay than non-union workers in the United States. This study says after controlling for individual job and labor market characteristics. Unions had their highest membership in the 1950s. And you may recall that uh, some of the problems that have existed in some government agencies has to do with pension funds for union workers and how those are to be funded going forward. Certainly a very big issue here in San Diego. Now, unions began forming in the United States uh, after the Industrial Revolution uh, in the post-Civil War era, and the Knights of Labor was an early organization, American Federation of Labor, another, and they especially began to flourish after the New Deal policies of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, and in particular, the Wagner Act uh, protected the right of employees to organize. And at that point, they were developing closer and closer ties to the Democratic Party, understandably so. Starting in the 40s, however, things began to change. The Taft-Hartley Act was passed, and I'll tell a little bit more about what it did. It was initially vetoed by President Truman, but then that veto was overridden. It did a bunch of things, but it really significantly weakened the unions. It banned union contributions to political candidates, and it also restricted their power to call strikes that, quote, threatened national security. And then in the late 1950s, there was another act that was passed after there were investigations of corruption and internal politics inside the Teamsters. And that very interesting group we'll talk about a little bit more. So that act was called the Landrum-Griffin Act. Uh, in 1955, the AFL and the CIO merged. And the percentage of workers that belonged to a union at that point peaked in 1954 at almost 35%, and the total number of members peaked in 1979 at an estimated 21 million. And remember, we're at 14 now. Membership has declined a lot, especially in the private sector, uh, which is camouflaged in part because of the rise in membership on the public side. Uh, during the 1960s, the unions uh, grew very well, and although manufacturing and farming went down, the state and local government employment rose uh, from 4 million workers in 1950 to 12 million in 1976, and then 16 million in 2009. So then you add in the federal employees, and that's where you arrive at you know, this percentage of, of uh, public employees being in the 30s. Now, starting in the 70s, changes in uh, the business of uh, production really changed a lot. There were increasing imports, so cars and steel and electronics from Germany and Japan, and then clothing and shoes from Asia. So the factories uh, started really moving around. There was a, 
uh, far fewer workers in high-wage sectors and more in the low-wage sectors, and many companies moved or closed. They especially moved to southern states where unions were weaker, and then uh, they would fight back against action by the unions uh, threatening to strike by, in turn, threatening to close or move a plant. A lot of factory jobs obviously went overseas for lower wages. And then here's this very interesting statistic. The number of major strikes and lockouts fell by 97% from 381 in 1970 to 187 in 1980, so 10 years later, and then to only 11 in 2010. So the strikes and lockouts really essentially vanished. And then again, on the political front, the unions were losing influence with the Democratic Party, and many industries were deregulated, often over the objections of the unions, but still further weakening the unions. And then I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember this, there was really a big blow when uh, Ronald Reagan as president uh, broke the strike for the air traffic controllers, and that was in 1981. That was really kind of a big blow there to unions. You know, there's some complexity around unionizing, whether or not all employees will be forced to join a union or in some states that are called uh, right-to-work states, uh, they don't have the right to force everyone into a union, and so their unions are often weaker because members elect not to join the union. In some cases, employees can form a minority union, but again, that makes it harder for them to have a whole lot of clout when there is, as there often is in power structures, a division amongst the ranks. And of course, there are lots of examples of employers trying to discourage unionizing. Uh, that's Every once in a while, that'll hit the press. And I hope that we'll talk about some more specifics, especially in the tech companies uh, in some episodes to come. One thing that might not be a surprise to you, it was a surprise to me, but perhaps not to you, is that uh, there's still a very high public opinion uh, favorable opinion about unions. So the Gallup organization has tracked public opinion of unions since 1936, and at that point, 72% of Americans approved of unions. It uh, declined somewhat in the late 60s, uh, but still generally, unions have always been supported by the majority of Americans. In fact, even in as recently as August 2018, 62% of respondents approved of unions, and a disapproval of unions was expressed by only 32%. So, very interesting. A similar poll from the Pew Research Center uh, shows that in 2018, union support was about 55%, so also fairly high. Uh, but, of course, during all this time, union membership, at least on the private side, has continued to fall. And there's a lot of speculation for why that might be. I think it's hard to uh, be popular when when nobody else is doing it, right? I think that's always a, a challenge. So they just don't have enough critical mass, right? And, and of course, it's gotten more complicated with so many employees on uh, working part-time jobs and whether or not that makes them eligible for unions and all those kinds of details. And then not being able to strike, except under certain circumstances, of course, makes it very difficult. 
I want to go back to the Teamsters here uh, for a minute because I think they have partly contributed to people's negative feelings about unions and uh, labor people in general. They got started initially as the Team Drivers International Union as part of the AFL. And then in 1901, they broke away and formed the Teamsters National Union. Then they wanted to get back into the AFL, and so the AFL suggested that several groups of the Teamsters join together, and eventually they did, forming the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Things were chaotic from the very beginning. There was a lot of fighting over who was going to be president, and eventually Cornelius Shea became the first general president. And cooperation amongst the Teamsters was really important for strikes because if they all banded together, they could essentially paralyze and stop any movement of goods through a city. Uh, So they were very powerful, uh, which also meant that they were uh, vulnerable to corruption and, in fact, uh, were very corrupt and demanded bribes in order to avoid strikes and also were partnering with organized crime figures. In 1905, 10,000 Teamsters struck in support of Taylors at Montgomery Ward, and 25,000 Teamsters manned the picket lines. But when the newspapers discovered that Shea was living in a local brothel and kept a 19-year-old as a mistress and was hosting parties during the strike, public support for the strike collapsed, and it ended in 1905. Nevertheless, he won re-election that same year. He was elected again and again, and finally was brought up on charges stemming from that strike and promised that he would resign the presidency but he didn't. Uh, Eventually, somebody else did uh, take over uh, by a very close vote. Uh, So the person then who was president was Daniel J. Tobin, and that organization continued during the Great Depression, though there was lots of fighting with other organized labor, the Longshoremen's, and the brewery organizations, and then trying to get other truck drivers in with the Teamsters, but also uh, fighting against some organizations that were put together by communist members. And so lots of turmoil and outrage and political posturing. Uh, But by 1941, he had a paying membership of 530,000, which made it the fastest growing labor union in the United States. But the corruption was even more widespread during that time. And by 1941, it was considered the most corrupt in the United States. And Tobin defended the union against accusations of corruption, but he also did many things that made it easier for union officials to engage in illegal activities. So by the beginning of World War II, the Teamsters was one of the most powerful unions in the country, and they were involved uh, in the White House and all kinds of uh, corridors of power. Tobin got to be appointed as a representative to the UK and uh, was considered for a Secretary of Labor. Uh, So lots of shoulder rubbing there. And lots of internal power struggles inside the union itself. So by the time the union membership was up to one million by 1949, there was a very influential vice president, Dave Beck, 
who began uh, threatening Tobin's uh, seat at the top. And Beck allied with uh, uh, his longtime rival, uh, but eventual partner, Jimmy Hoffa. You knew that we would get to Jimmy Hoffa eventually. So Beck and Hoffa did seize control, but there was a lot of pushback from AFL because they felt as though the Teamsters and those individuals were corrupt and should not be allowed to take over the organization. So there was a lot of skirmishes uh, between those organizations. And indeed, continued evidence of really widespread corruption uh, became more apparent Uh, In Kansas City, the Teamsters were accused of bribing people, embezzling money, uh, extortion, and all kinds of labor rackets. It was really, you know, the dark side of unions. In fact, the the problem was so serious that the U.S. House of Representatives uh, held hearings about the issue and also led to congressional investigations and several indictments for fraud and other crimes against Beck and Hoffa new legislation about labor unions, and actually even launched the political career of Robert F. Kennedy. The Senate established a committee on improper activities in labor and management, a very powerful committee that was chaired by John L. McClellan, and he hired uh, Robert F. Kennedy as the subcommittee's chief counsel and investigator. And the McClellan committee went on to expose widespread corruption inside the the uh, Teamsters Union. And in fact, Dave Beck actually fled the country. All kinds of things were exposed. Evidence um, came up about a mob-sponsored plot inside the Oregon Teamsters Union in which they were planning to seize control of state legislature and state police uh, through bribery and extortion and blackmail. So really tough uh, nasty struggles going on there between all these different organizations from the mob to the Teamsters and the politicians, like all kind of in the same bed during this time. Hoffa got arrested for allegedly trying to bribe a Senate aide, uh, but the arrest caused there to be more investigations and more arrests and more indictments, and things started coming out. Beck admitted that he'd gotten an interest-free loan and uh, other investigators showed that those loans and other money moving around had cost the union almost $700,000. Beck appeared before the committee and invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, which sounds like a detail, but it actually turned out to be fairly important for making rules about who could be president or executives inside labor unions if they were then going to go in front of judicial bodies and invoke their Fifth Amendment right. Uh, So then the McClellan Committee uh, started looking into Hoffa, and more uh, things started coming out. Uh, Beck was also indicted for tax evasion, and eventually support for him collapsed because of his legal difficulties, and that opened the way for Hoffa to become the union president. And there was a lot of support for Hoffa. Now, meanwhile, he had been arrested for wiretapping, and a federal court barred him from taking over the presidency until... Uh, that case went through, uh, and the ruling was upheld by a court of appeals, but his trial actually ended in a hung jury, and so he took over the presidency in 1958. 
Now, meanwhile, all of this craziness at the Teamsters level was irritating, as you can imagine, the AFL-CIO. And so uh, they moved to, to kick the Teamsters out of the AFL-CIO. So the AFL-CIO said, okay, you guys can stay in our organization as long as Hoffa resigns. And no surprise, Hoffa didn't resign. And so formal expulsion uh, took place on 1957 and then became the golden era of Jimmy Hoffa. He was able to get all of the freight drivers under one agreement, the National Master Freight Agreement in 1964. And he really was able to concentrate a lot of power where uh, Tobin and Beck uh, had not had failed, and then he really started going in with the mafia in a big way, uh, using the assets of the pension plans to finance Las Vegas casinos, uh, loans to all kinds of different people, um, insurance processing that also became the subject of an investigation by the McClellan Committee. Uh, just on and on, Hoffa was getting uh, more and more under attack by Robert F. Kennedy, who at this point had become the Attorney General. And the Department of Justice tried to convict Hoffa for all kinds of offenses during the 60s, finally getting him with a witness tampering charge uh, with testimony provided by one of his uh, co-workers. And after exhausting all of his appeals, he went into prison in 1967. Uh, Then, very interesting, again, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Richard Nixon pardoned Jimmy Hoffa in... Uh, 1971. And in turn for that, then Hoffa was helpful in President Nixon's uh, re-election. The deal with Nixon was supposed to be that he was not going to take any role with the Teamsters until 1980. um, But Hoffa was fighting against that when he disappeared in 1975. And he is presumed dead, uh, although his body's never been found. There's actually a lot of information about his whereabouts and plans on the day that he disappeared. So remember, he was fighting to get back into to become the president again or get become part of the leadership of the Teamsters. And there were a number of members of the mafia that did not want him to uh, come back in. I think there'd been some uh, fighting with one of the lead members of the mafia, Provenzano, who I guess they got into a fight when both of them were in federal prison in the 1960s. And uh, it also appears maybe that the mafia had somebody else in mind that they wanted to take over the leadership. So, So Jimmy was making himself pretty unpopular with these mafia members. And there were several people who were trying to organize, quote-unquote, peace meetings. But Jimmy Hoffa's son was increasingly worried that one of those meetings would lead to Jimmy ending up dead. On this day of July 30th, 1975, there was a meeting uh, that was set up that was supposed to take place in a suburb of Detroit. Oh, and I should mention here that I noticed that Jimmy Hoffa is actually born in my weird state of uh, Indiana. Anyway, all of this activity was taking place in Michigan. And he uh, went there to this place called the Red Fox, uh, but nobody was there. And so he was calling various people and saying he'd been stood up. And then it does appear that eventually somebody arrived in a car and he left with them. There were some witnesses uh, saying that he had left with some people. And then that was it. He was never heard from again. Uh, The next day, 
His wife called her children, saying that her father hadn't come home, and then the police were brought in. There was uh, some indication that a car that belonged to one of these mafia-type son uh, had been borrowed by somebody who perhaps might have had a role in the disappearance. Uh, some indication that Hoffa's scent was in the car and maybe later that a uh, piece of DNA evidence was also connected to the car. Uh, which brings us to The Irishman. So The Irishman, which is now up tonight for all kinds of Academy Awards, I won't even read them all, all off to you, but many, many, uh, was based on a book called I Heard You Paint Houses, which is apparently code for I Hear You Kill People, and so you uh, paint houses red with people's blood. Uh, anyway, so that very long movie is allegedly part of this story, that it was this mafia affiliate who uh, shot uh, Hoffa in the head once they were inside the house. Uh, there's some dispute about the accuracy of that account, uh, but I think at this point, now that it's been documented in a Hollywood film, we were all more likely to accept that as the truth. All right, so there you have it, quick history of labor unions along with its colorful figures, and I'm hoping that this is a topic that we return to again. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. In keeping with the new year, we'll be changing our format somewhat as the show has evolved. We'll continue to address work-related problems, but in our second year, we'll be going beyond just an advice show to talk about work trends, labor laws, economics, interesting companies, as well as pranks, bad bosses, and more screw-ups at work. If you have a question about a work-related issue or a comment about the show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website discreetguide.com. That's D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T. And at that website, you can also sign up for The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, and get information about training programs, books, consulting sessions, articles, jokes, and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces. And thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday and sometimes Friday. Tune in so you can hear more about trouble at work. <laughs>